Sports fans rejoice. You're listening to my team, my voice with MTMV Sports. I'm coming in. Hey, this is Chicago Hill, and you're listening to MTMV Sports. Keep it locked. Hello and welcome to the Know Your Personnel podcast. We are on all major podcast apps. You can also find us on MTMV Sports Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to both stations so that you never miss an episode. Please remember to leave us a five-star rating. Download and share this episode with a friend so we can continue to grow the game. I'm very excited for our next guest. Let's jump in. Hello and welcome back to the KYP podcast. I'm thrilled to introduce our next guest, Coach Scott Fields. Coach Fields has coached uh, for over 30 years at at nearly every level, including FIBA, NCAA, the NBA, and the NJCAA, which is a National Junior College League. Uh, Coach Fields, thank you so much for joining us today. Coach, I appreciate your time. As I'm honored to be here with you. So as we've talked before, uh, let's hope we can empower and inspire some others uh, on their journeys and their paths as well. Very good, Coach. And, and I get fired up even talking to you. You're, you're, a, you're a huge advocate for the game, and, and, and you're so good for what we do here, both online and on the floor. L- let's get after it. Uh, let's let's start it. at the beginning. You have a, a storied basketball career, but every career starts at a certain spot. Let's talk about when you started, when you fell in love with the game. I'd love to hear about your high school days as a player and the coach or coaches that you played for and what they mean to you. You know what? Uh, I was born and raised in the state of Indiana. And if you know much about basketball here in the United States, uh, that's big basketball. Uh, I grew up in Indiana before it was classification. So if you've watched the movie Hoosiers, that's how I grew up. And I feel like that prepared me for life. Uh, meaning that, you know, it was small schools versus big schools. And I grew up in, at a very small country school in uh, rural Indiana, and we had to compete with the big boys. And I've got to be honest with you, it, uh, it, was, it was thrilling. Uh, the, the movie Hoosiers talks about little um, Milan, Indiana, and they had to play against a big Muncie Central Bearcats to win the state. Um, of course, that was back in the 1950s where that movie was based out of. But Growing up with non-classification basketball definitely prepared me for life because, or I mean, think about it, there's no classifications when you're trying to apply for jobs and compete for jobs. So it, it definitely prepares you uh, for life because you know there's going to be struggles. And you know, I think before classification basketball, that was, that was true, true basketball in the state of Indiana. Uh, fell in love with the game, just being outdoors, uh, watching my dad play. And uh, just the challenge of the sport, because he was just a young guy trying to get that little ball up there to that 10-foot hoop, and it pushed me and challenged me. I just wanted to get that ball through that cylinder. And then if you grow up with any type of uh, athleticism uh, and and you are into sports, uh, basketball players are kind of treated like gods. And I know that may sound kind of crazy, but uh, it's just – it's just amazing to think that you can go to a, a small community high school and, you know, have four or five, 6,000 people at, at, a, at a high school gym. So it was, it was a great atmosphere to grow up in. And I was actually a, a Hall of Fame high school athlete um, for my high school. So uh, I was blessed with a lot of skills, but I also feel that my mindset and my mentality also helped prepare me for my career playing in college, that which also set me on the path to coaching uh, at the college level and then also professionally. That's awesome, Coach. And everyone, every, you, as coaches, everything kind of goes back to Indiana. A lot of places, that's kind of the mecca of the game, although we know it was invented in Canada and started kind of in Kansas with, with Naismith, but Indiana is kind of where it all comes together. Is it really like what they say where it's farm, family, and basketball, and maybe just in that order, and, and, uh, and, and, and that's all that the kids think about and care about? Is that how it is growing up there? Well, I've got to be honest with you, Coach. When I think back, almost every garage had a basketball goal. Every barn had a goal. Every light pole had a goal. So uh, if there's a place where you could hang a rim, 
you know, we, we were out there shooting on it. And uh, I can remember some competitive battles in some great barns in some nearby counties growing up to where, you know, I would play against bigger, faster, stronger, more athletic guys. And they just beat the tar out of me, which prepared me for physicality. But I was also uh, the quarterback of the high school football team all four years. Actually had more offers in football than I did basketball. Set, set um, multiple uh, school records in track and even competed in the long jump in the state for track and then also played baseball. Uh, so for me, you know, I think playing multiple sports, uh, you know, staying in shape, staying focused, staying prepared, uh, you know, keeping my academics in line, again, are things that I think prepared me for a very fruitful career. But if you had told me when I was 15 years old that I'd be traveling the world a game of basketball, I would have said, you know, that, that's in your wildest dreams. But here I've got a passport uh, filled with more ink than a Sunday newspaper. And I just aged myself again by saying a Sunday newspaper. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, but it is true. I've been blessed to have traveled the globe and have been part of some great things. But it all, it all started uh, in the good old state of Indiana. How were, you said the players were looked out there very highly. How were the coaches looked at out there? Were they, was, was getting a high school job out in Indiana, like kind of like getting a college job? Were they, were they looked at as, as, you know, kind of a pinnacle in the community? How, how did that work for the coaches? You know, I, I feel like coaches uh, were always put on a pedestal. And, you know, if, if you had talent or you had a guy with ch- talent, uh, you, you even put on more of a pedestal. Uh, Jobs in Indiana with high school coaching are very competitive. Uh, I remember I had three high school coaches uh, going through. I mean, yeah, one was a math teacher. Another guy was brought in because, you know, he was just an outstanding coach and he taught phys ed. And then we had, you know, economics teachers. Uh, So it's just, it's amazing to me, the competitive market that there is for coaches, Uh, you know, and, and they all knew how to shoot it. We, we're kind of known for shooters in Indiana. And I, again, I think that's because everybody had a, had a rim. But uh, the mechanics were taught well. The, the fundamentals are taught well. We were very cerebral with the game. Uh, you know, o- only a handful of guys could play above the rim. Uh, at that level. And I, I happen to be one of those that was gifted with some athleticism who could do that. But, uh, you know, most of the game is played below the rim. So it was all about, you know, fundamental basketball, setting good screens, good passes, getting into the teeth of the defense, uh, hitting somebody in the shooter's pocket so they could catch and shoot and have a quick release. There's a lot of fundamentals that, that are taught through Indiana basketball. And I, I think of, you know, coaches that, that I played for in high school, you know, sometimes, you know, you can agree or you'd have personality conflicts because here I was at a young age, I knew right away that I wanted to get into coaching because of the impact on the lives that you could have. And uh, I always want to be one of those guys that instilled confidence into the players. And, uh, you know, I, I look back and I think of the influence that several of the coaches had on me at a young age. They're like father figures because you're around them as much, if not more than, than your biological father. So, yeah, I think it's very important that, that coaches are, uh, you know, have great core values, are re- re- willing and ready to teach life lessons. And, and we need more of that because right now you see a shift, a, a paradigm shift where uh, AAU basketball has more of a priority than your high school uh, coaches. And, I, and sometimes I don't know if, if the right life lessons are being taught through this AAU culture, but that, that's a whole nother topic. But uh, growing up in Indiana was, was phenomenal for me. I agree. And you're right. That is a whole nother topic, but I definitely agree with you on that. You were a Hall of Fame high school player at your school. You said you had many scholarship offers. Talk to us about uh, what your college playing was like, where you went, and how your coaches were there. You know what? Um, my college coach that I chose to go down and play for uh, was a huge influence in my life. And I'll give you the backstory. Um, I did mention to you that I was a Hall of Fame uh, high school athlete. Uh, in order to accept my scholarship down in the state of North Carolina, they required that I took an oral, oral polio vaccine that was not required by the State Board of Education in Indiana. And when I did that, it actually caused my immune system to go awry. So I went from being a Hall of Fame level player 
uh, gifted with athleticism to every joint in my body being inflamed with arthritis. I had my jaw, I had it in my sternum, I had it in my shoulders, had it in my hands, my wrists, my knees, uh, ankles. I went fast for nine months. And when you look at my uh, resume, you'll say I've been to college coaching right away. And that's because the guy that I went and made my high or played my college ball with threw me a life jacket and uh, he knew I wanted to get into coaching after my career was over um, my, my college career ended early I did have one game as a freshman where I set a, a single game record for 22 assists and 22 points in the career classic but the career was ended early and that college coach uh, allowed me to come back complete my undergraduate degree with him as I got my degree because he knew I wanted to get into coaching and things took off from there so if it wasn't for coach Randy Unger who was also an Indiana guy who happened to be coaching in North Carolina at the time who took a new job in the state of Tennessee where I finished my degree um, that that catapulted me on a career path and uh, if it wasn't for him I wouldn't have had all the all the journeys all of the success all the travel uh I, I can't i can't thank him enough for the opportunity that he allowed me and again uh coach randy younger uh if it wasn't for him uh, there would be no scott fields wow so you're telling me that in order to get into college you had to take a vaccine and then you took that vaccine and your body reacted uh, yes. uh negatively to it so much yes. so that it cost you your athletic career yeah, it it, caught, it it basically triggered my immune system to fight my own body. So it attacked all the soft tissue in every joint in my body. Uh, my knees were probably the first affected. They, they swelled to about size of cantaloupes. My ankles uh, were about the size of softballs. Uh, my shoulder got so inflamed that it was actually my my right shoulder, which was my shooting hand, I couldn't lift my arm above my head. And I was continuing to struggle uh, as I was still in school and I couldn't fight the pain, but I had such a high pain tolerance. And to give you another backstory, coach, I can remember my senior year in football right before homecoming. And I played quarterback all four years in high school. I had broken my ankle and they casted my ankle and I played in the homecoming and we still got two touchdowns on a broken ankle. So for me to, to play through pain was never a problem for me, but this was a pain like I've never uh, felt before and I couldn't fight through that pain and it was just continued to swell. So um, I took that oral polio vaccine in October of 86, my freshman year in college. And by February of 87, I was bedfast. And again, I was bedfast for nine months. I couldn't squeeze a tube of tooth paste. I couldn't dress myself. I, I became very dependent on my family who became my caretakers and had to roll me and get me in and out of bed. And basically, you know, it was a short hallway from my bedroom to the bathroom and the pain that I was in, I swear it felt like it took, it was in so much pain. Uh, my, my body became a torture chamber uh, of that pain. And uh, thank goodness we were able to do uh, a lot of doctoring because my father had great insurance at the time and we were able to go through specialists and I had to get it, get into the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota and at one time taking 16 pills a day uh, to try to get something that was never going to get get my uh, arthritis in, remis in remission but it could be controlled so I could have some sort of quality of life and uh, they told me I'd be in a wheelchair at the age of 26. We fought through that and uh, by the time I was 26 uh, you know, I was still coaching at some of the, you know, some nationally ranked programs uh, in the nation. And then I took my first professional head coaching job at the age of, uh, I think I was 27 when I took my very first professional head coaching job. Wow, that, that's quite a story. That, that sounds really scary. And um, well, I mean, obviously, you made it through and, and, and have a new lease on life after that. But during that, that, that had to be really scary for you and your family. So let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about you got into coaching. You, you touched on it a little bit. Where did you get your start? And uh, how did you move up and on from those places? Well, as I mentioned, Coach Randy Unger, who I played my college ball for, uh, took a, a NAIA job in Tennessee. It was King College, which is now King University, the Tornadoes. Um, and so when my 
junior and senior year, I completed my undergraduate degree there and was already a full-time coach. So I took the stipend from that opportunity of coaching uh, with my college coach um, that, that went back to try to help pay. I felt like since the game was taken away from me physically, I wanted to be able to inspire um, others on their journey and help them in their journey. And I think it taught me to grow up and have maturity very early because I was already coaching players who were my age and older than me. And I knew I had to come with the juice. I had to have the knowledge. I needed to do as much research as I could so I could teach them and gain their respect. So doing that uh, definitely helped. And then from there, uh, you know, I, I went to some division one schools. Uh, I was at Centenary College in Louisiana, where Robert Parrish, uh, the chief uh, that played for the Celtics, where he played. I also coached at uh, Chawan Junior College in North Carolina, where Nate McMillan, who was the coach who was just with the Indiana Pacers, who just signed an extension and then, then was released of his duties here this last week. Um, but you know, Chipola Junior College, we were number two in the nation. So I've had some wonderful college coaching experiences. And then, you know, as I said, at the age of 26, 27, a unique opportunity came up for me where I jumped right into the pro game. And I took that job because I wanted to be a head coach. And I knew I had what it took to be a head coach. And then uh, I started off on a path of being overseas and being in multiple countries throughout Europe and Scandinavia that turned into jobs that went to the Middle East and then the Middle East turned into South America and South America into China and being in some of the um, highest professional leagues uh, across the globe that had teams that played at the world championships. So when they played at the world championships, they're representing their countries and also coach some countries where they, you know, competed at the Olympics. I think there's a better honor as a coach than, than doing that. And then those opportunities also led me to be um, in, in, into the NBA for a little, as we say, a proverbial cup tea. Talk to me about the pro game. Um, tell me, you know, tell our listeners the difference between that and college and and, you know, what the players are like, what the leagues are like. Um, what is it What is it about the overseas game that is so appealing? I think that's a great question. The thing that attracted me to going overseas was definitely the fact that I'd be a head coach. And it allowed me to practice my skills. It allowed me to work on my philosophies and to work with those philosophies with my personality. I'm a high-energy guy. And being overseas, enjoyed overseas because – they, they were such sponges. They were so coachable and they wanted to learn from American coaches. So I utilized that, that platform and that space to go over to really empower the players, but yet they were already very, very skilled. Um, the players in Europe uh, to me have a better grassroots level of basketball than what we do here in the States. I feel like the game is taught better through their club systems. Their clubs are what we have as franchises, but they have clubs that they start off as very, very young. So when they're 10, 11, 12 years old, they play with what they call minis and then there's scholars and then there's cadets and then there's the junior leagues and then there's the senior leagues, which is the top pro level league. And I think being in that, that academy style, um, you know, everybody's on the same page. Uh, the fundamentals are, are drilled daily. And I picked that up and I thought for me to be a successful coach, I wanted to make sure, because to me, I, I would look around and to me, the best coaches are the best teachers and the best communicators. We would have open dialogue and have, you know, serious conversations about assessing the players on where they were at with their skills and their abilities. We would identify those things because I wanted those players to be realistic about what their ceiling was. And then when, when once we decided that, hey, you know, I, I'd look them in the eye and I'd give them a firm, firm handshake. And my first question with every player is, will you allow me to coach you? And when they say yes, that right there opens the door. Then that way I can challenge them and hold them accountable, uh, you know, for their daily actions. So that way we can have a culture of work and family and team. And uh, I, th I think that foundation was there overseas battle there's no entitlement they're just very coachable and they're very hard working and they would run through a wall for you told them that they needed to run through a wall to be a better player so that that uh lack of entitlement uh was very very intriguing to me. and the european players um is for a best game 
They're not always playing above the rim, but you now see so much of that European influence on the NBA game because several of these coaches have all coached overseas. Nick Nurse, who just won coach here, I got to coach against Nick Nurse in Italy, and he was outstanding. So I'm super proud of Nick Nurse and the job that he does, um, you know, with the Toronto Raptors. And then I look at Mike D'Antoni, who did a great job because he was a player and coach overseas that's had great success. And then a lot of these uh, NBA staffs now have European coaches right there on their benches because you know they they play with space and they play with pace and you know and the, there's there's great ball movement where before the NBA was known as just one on one or two on two pick and roll game and the better teams are the teams that play unselfishly and make the extra pass and and play selfless basketball with ball movement. So uh, when you see the Golden State Warriors, um, you know the last few years before KD was injured and before uh, Clay Thompson was injured, you saw beautiful ball movement and selfless play just as you do the San Antonio Spurs. But look at San Antonio Spurs and Popovich. They had such a European influence where Tim Duncan was from overseas. Manu Ginobili was from overseas. Tony Parker was from overseas. So that European influence is, is heavily on the game right now. They're not as athletic overseas, but they're very skilled. They're great passers, and they can all step out and shoot it, which gives you that spacing for the floor. So that way players can use their skill sets and their speed and athleticism to get to the rack. How do you, you, you talked about the players uh, and, and the overseas guys are not entitled over there and they'll sit and they'll listen to you. But I can imagine when you get up to the top pro ranks, you're still dealing with guys who've always been the best and always been told that what they're doing is right. How do you sit down with a, with a high level pro player and say, hey, look, if this is where you need to improve, this is, this, these are some areas that I see are weaknesses from you and still get and still not have him, you know, look at you like you don't know what you're talking about or, or become unreceptive. How do you work that with a pro player? You know, I think it's a great question, Coach. And, you know, and the ones who are the great players, they are the ones who are the most coachable. Uh, over my shoulder, I've got the Kobe Bryant Mamba Mentality book uh, where, you know, he wanted to emulate and, you know, be – be the next MJ, Michael Jordan. And the one thing that I enjoyed about the last dance when COVID-19 came up is that it introduced a younger generation to who Michael Jordan was, who took the game global. And, you know, Kobe Bryant wanted to be the next MJ. So anybody that he could steal from, anything, anybody that he could be around who was around Michael Jordan, he thirsted for that knowledge. He didn't get bored with the mundane and he worked extremely hard on his skills and his crafts around the clock, hours before anybody else would even come into the gym. Uh, Tex Winter, a Hall of Fame coach who was a great friend of mine uh, who coached with the Chicago Bulls and the LA Lakers um, when Phil Jackson. Jackson went over, um, you know, it's, it's minds like that, that Kobe wanted to steal from. So they're very, very coachable. Uh, Steph Curry, when I was with him as a rookie uh, with the Golden State Warriors, he was very, very coachable. So the great ones, they are the ones that, that want to be coached. They want to be challenged. They want to be held accountable. It's the other players that, you know, are just satisfied. I am complacent of being there and uh, that, that don't work as hard. They kind of sit back and listen to what everybody has to say to them, whether it's their agent or their girlfriend or their wife or their family. And of course, they're always going to tell them that they're the best because that's, that's what they know. But to take an outside opinion and take, take corrective criticism and coaching, those are the guys that are special. And those are the guys that have longevity in their career and they take better care of their bodies because they, they take that coaching. That's a very good point. And that's a really good point. So if a player is, is, you know, not receptive to coaching, you, you, you don't even talk about the coaching anymore. You talk about, look, look what Kobe Bryant does. You know, you, you, who doesn't respect him? Look how Steph Curry reacts to coaching. Look how Tim Duncan reacts to coaching. You need to change your attitude on the coaching if you want to be good. And, and then all of a sudden, it's not That's even right. about basketball anymore. It's about your personality and who you need to emulate. I think it's great that, you know, our basketball, uh, our basketball greats are known for their hard work and for their ability to take instruction and almost thirst for it. I think that's a real advantage that us coaches have. I don't, I don't know if every sport has that. When you think of some of the other sports and some of the other great players, those guys aren't always known for being the most receptive, but ours are. And I think that's a really good thing. Even Jordan, you know, he would, 
when Phil Jackson said run, he ran. You know, when Phil Jackson said do that, he did it. And, you know, he wanted it. He, he believed that that was the right thing to do. So I think that's an excellent point. You spent many, many years overseas. What are some good stories? What are so, what's something that, that, you know, that you always, when you think about your time overseas, a story or a situation that always comes up and brings a smile to your face, what's something you could think of that you could share with our listeners? Well, you know, uh, I've been blessed, Coach. We, we've won multiple championships in FIBA. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. The byproduct of hard work and focus and of your culture was the success. Uh, the success came because everybody bought into it. I think when a coach is able to set his side, his ego and meet the players where they're at and have that effective communication. Uh, and when I say effective communication, it was all about identifying roles and responsibilities and, you know, taking their skill set to mesh it into the team for the greater good of the team, that's when things happen special. So I probably remember more of the close calls and the, the close losses than I do the, uh, the successes, even though the successes are, are, are pure, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're the, just the best. I can remember we're in a championship in the Middle East and we were in the country of Beirut, Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was one of my favorite countries to coach in. Cause again, I've already shared with you, I grew up in the state of Indiana where basketball was number one. And in Beirut, Lebanon, you know, we just saw a horrible explosion a few weeks ago from Lebanon. And, and I can relate to that because when I was in Lebanon, the prime minister of the country was assassinated and killed. And that prime minister was a main supporter of the team that I coached. Um, but to share the story, to give you the backstory, why this championship was so special, the team that I was coaching we were Muslim-based. The prime minister was the main financial supporter of our team. The seven-time reigning champion, they were Christian-based. And the president of the country uh, was the main financial supporter of that team. So right now, I'm already telling you, politics, religion, and sport all intertwined. And for us to win our first championship, we had to beat that seven-time reigning champion on the road on their home court. And I can remember that that the atmosphere was so intense and so competitive because not only was it sport, it was religion and politics. The court was lined with guys from Army who wore berets and carried Uzi. So for a guy to be in a gym where guys were carrying Uzis for security because it was such an intense, uh, such an intense environment. Uh, you know, you, you hear NBA people and you hear Charles and Shaq and those guys on NBA TV talk about a hostile environment. Beirut, Lebanon, that was a hostile environment. And, and winning a championship and knowing how the fans supported us. Um, I, when we won that game and we toured back to our home court, um, there were probably 10,000 people in the community. And when we stepped off the bus, they picked us up and carried us on their shoulders like beach balls for four and a half hours, chanting and singing and fireworks going off. And uh, to, to see the passion of those people and the love of those people, it would remind you, our home court facility would remind you of Cameron Indoor, where the Dukies play. And you see that student section jumping and chanting and going crazy. That's what Beirut, Lebanon was, because in most European countries, the number one sport is soccer. But in Beirut, Lebanon, it's definitely basketball. And I got to coach there when basketball was at its height because the national team was also in the top 16 in the world at the time. So, uh, you know, you sprinkle in two or three in former NBA players with a high quality level of basketball of the local Lebanese players, you had something special. And winning that championship and being on the shoulders of the fans for, for four hours uh, that's something that, that I'll carry with me the rest of my life because you saw how important basketball and winning was to a country that was war-torn and had so much, uh, you know, civil unrest. And then, then the border wars with Syria, who we later find out that Syria assassinated the prime minister, um, it, it became special to my heart. And it, Lebanon will always be special to me uh, for the rest of my life because of those experiences with those wonderful players. Wow, Coach, that sounds like a movie. <laughs> I've never heard of anything like that. And, and to win that and all that stuff going on, I'm picturing it in my mind as you're speaking. Um, you know, that's, that, that definitely is a once in a lifetime. I don't even call it once in a lifetime because not everyone gets it, but that's, a, that, that's quite an experience. 
Uh, thank you for sharing but, that. And I can also, well, another quick, another country, I can even coach in Saudi Arabia. They, they play basketball in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the success we had in Saudi Arabia, we were the Asian champions, which means we were the number one team in all of Asia from from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And because we won that, I was able to go to the palace and meet King Abdulaziz and Prince Fuad with the interior uh, director of sports for the country. So to be, go in and be knighted uh, by the kings uh, of that country, because that was the first time that anybody, they had ever had success outside of the country. That was also amazing to meet political dignitaries like that and be around such royalty where everything was laid in gold and uh, seeing him in his, in his golden robe and, you know, to have the security around them and to see that how much it meant to those players to meet King Abdulaziz. Uh, that was also something very, very special. That's really cool, Coach. Uh, you you didn't st- you didn't stay in uh, FIBA. You ended up going to the NBA. Talk to us how you made that transition. Uh, who 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 helped you get to the NBA, and what your first uh, first experiences with NBA or American professional basketball were like. Well, it was definitely in the NBA. Uh, As I mentioned to you, I grew up in the great state of Indiana, and there was a young man who became uh, very famous back in 1983 for hitting a championship-winning shot for Indiana University to beat Syracuse. His name was Keith Smart. Keith Smart is a gentleman who uh, has coached in in the NBA with multiple teams, and uh, he was the head coach of the NBA Summer League team. And my relationship with him, he allowed me and opened the door for me to come in and, and be around him and his staff and the, the NBA players. Uh, Keith Smart was the gentleman who gave me my first opportunity uh, to do that. And again, that was with the Golden State Warriors when Steph Curry was just drafted by the uh, Golden State Warriors uh, out of Davidson College. Uh, so that was awesome for me. And then uh, meeting my wife and being based out of Salt Lake City, where I coached a CBA uh, team here, Coach Jerry Sloan, uh, Hall of Fame coach who just passed this year. May he rest in, may he rest in peace. Uh, he also called me and allowed me to come in and observe and consult and, and be with him. So to be with a Hall of Fame coach like Jerry Sloan, who coached uh, the Utah Jazz for 23 years and to accumulate 1,223 wins, uh, I, I'm blessed. I'm beyond blessed and fortunate that they, they saw that I brought something, you know, to the staff and to the franchises and to be around those level of players. That was when Carlos Boozer and Darren Williams and Andre Kalingo and Mehmet Okur, uh, Kyle Korber was his time with, with Brewer, uh, Matthews. Uh, we, you know, we beat the Denver Nuggets first one, so – those were the guys that opened the door to me and were so gracious to allow me to come in and, uh, and provide insight and input and uh, I, something that, that I'm, I'm forever grateful for because to learn from Hall of Fame coach on a daily basis, coach, I got to be on every day for me like a clinic and I had my notebook out and I was writing things down that reinforced some of the philosophies that I had, but yet also how they would deal with the press, how they would deal and interact with the players, the conversations. Uh, I, I got to be around when, you know, they, they were bringing in draftees and guys that were trying to make the roster or the summer league rosters. And to be in that competitive environment uh, for, for those years uh, was something that I, I feel very, very blessed and fortunate to have had those opportunities. Well, let's, let's talk about Coach Sloan because uh, he is widely considered one of the best coaches of all time. He, uh, you know, even when I was growing up and and a teenager watching basketball, that's when the Utah Jazz were at their best. Um, And he was well recognized. I mean, it it was it was known that, you know, it's a short list of top guys in the world and he's one of them. You got to follow behind him and, and learn from him. What are some of the key takeaways that you learned from Coach Sloan? You know what? Um, he's one of the original Chicago Bulls. And when, when I think of, you know, the original, I hold up four fingers because his number four jersey hangs in the rafters. And he was always known, uh, again, a Midwest guy who grew up in southern Illinois. And so maybe that Midwest connection uh, and, and growing up in the rural, you know, country and farm uh, was was something that was in common. But 
he was just known for his toughness. Uh, he wasn't going to let the, the tail wag the dog. Uh, he demanded your best from you each and every day, where you, whether you were the highest paid player on contract or you were the 15th man on the roster on injured reserve. He expected you to have your shirt tucked in, your socks pulled up, you to be presentable, no facial hair, clean cut, and ready to go to work and ready to be held accountable. Um, he didn't care. And uh, as I'm saying, he didn't let the tail wag the dog. And it was refreshing to see that old school mentality where he just, he, he wanted that toughness and he wanted you to compete. He, he cared about his players, he wanted his players to succeed. Uh, he would go above and beyond off the court to make sure that the players had the support systems that they had. So that they just worry about focusing on basketball and their careers. And that's the side that a lot of people did not get to see. They just saw the toughness and they saw the growler and the guy who would, you know, get up and challenge the referees. Coach expected everybody to be at their best all the time. If you weren't, he was going to let you know about it. So if you were a referee and you made a bad call, he's going to get up in your face and let you know you made a bad call. If you were if you were not given 100% effort, he's going to get in your face and he's going to tell you you're not bringing it today. You need to you need to check yourself at the door and, and bring it. So uh, yeah, that was refreshing to see just that tough nose, uh, hard competitive drive. Uh, you know, be that culture of that franchise and. That's why, you know, he had 1,223 wins because uh, that was the culture that was there. And, you know, when he stepped down, uh, the culture changed. And so to me, uh, you know, there, there, there are statues of Carl Malone and John Stockton outside of Vivint Smart Home Arena, which used to be the Delta Center. I hope that, that the Miller family, who are the owner of the Jazz, will also uh, have a shrine and a statue of Coach Jerry Sloan because he was the face of this franchise for years, and he's, he's so deserving of it. It, my friend what was uh, what was your role as a coach um you know what what was your job there when when you were with the Utah Jazz and even with the Golden State Warriors what were your roles as a coach uh, basically, I was just there to observe and consult. I sit up next to Jeff, Coach Jefferson Sweeney, who was the, uh, the the video coordinator at the time. And, you know, he would be videotaping practices. He would document certain things that happened at certain times because every practice was recorded. So that way it was used as a, as a teaching tool and mechanism. Because if you notice, most of these young players now are visual learners. And I think they're visual learners because of the technology. Kids are always on their phone. They're always on their computer. Computers. Uh, they're, they're always on their, you know, PS4s or their Xboxes. Uh, so my job was basically to sit there next to the video coordinator, uh, Coach Sloan and his staff at the time. Uh, if you remember, uh, Coach Phil Johnson was his loyal assistant for 23 years. And that loyalty was something that was wonderful to see. Coach Ty Corbin, who had a great career, but Coach would come up and sit with me and, and talk with me. It was kind of like the eye in the sky. And he'd be like, well, come on, you see, and be our rotation are a little bit slow walk right back out on the court and he would share exactly what I saw um what was your relationship with the players were you able to work with the players were you able to you know get in the drills with them or, or talk to them about film or maybe watch stuff or they ask you advice how did you work with them relationships with all the players I've I, you know being able to shake hands with them and and have conversations with them about their personal lives because that that was kind of me where you know I I I just believe in, in, in personal relationships and then talking with them after practice or telling them things that I would see. Uh, Ronnie Price was there at the time. I enjoyed my conversations with he. Uh, Wesley Matthews came from Marquette. And, uh, you know, he had some friends that he played with at Marquette that were looking to play overseas. And these players knew that I worked overseas. And then I would try to help you know, their friends find jobs overseas. And I did things like that. And then I can remember Carlos Boozer coming over, sitting down and talking. And I can remember um, that's when he was, you know, saying that he was going to opt out during free agency. Uh, and then I was also like an NBA insider at the time. And he, he came over and would thank me for not throwing him under the bus because, you know, I talked about the, the personal side of these players and those things. So yeah, we, we had conversations and we had relationships and I enjoyed, you know, just talking, you know, about life and basketball um then you were spent some time in golden state and you were right at the beginning of the uh of the curry years talk to me about yeah. what curry was like when he first was drafted as a young young player out of davidson and and what how maybe you could see the culture start to shift or or or, or uh you know what his work ethic work ethic was like how was curry to work with in golden state again coach these are great questions and i think these are questions that that 
deserve to be asked because people who listen to this podcast can also learn from that. So thank you. Uh, Again, Coach Keith Smart allowed me to uh, come in. And with the NBA Summer League, I, I sat on the bench with them. Uh, I was out on the court doing drills with those players. I'd be rebounding for them. I would talk to them about their shooting. I would talk to them about their mechanics. I would talk to them about where they were at in certain situations or special situations. Um, but I can remember Steph Curry coming up to me, and uh, he was like, Coach, uh, you know, where sh- how should my feet be when I'm coming off that screen and I'm I'm catching and I'm attacking off that pick and roll. And we would talk about his footwork and his shoulders, you know, and, and where his body positions to be. So that way he could utilize his quickness to attack and read that pick and roll and see that guard and how their guard shoulders were going to be once they come out and they would ice or they would blue uh, certain calls in defensive structures. Um, the fact that he would come and ask somebody from the outside in who was there to work with them as coaches, I could see right away that Steph Curry was coaching. Um, he grew up with a great support system, a father who played in the NBA, a mother who uh, definitely held him accountable. Um, but I also noticed, too, that he did a great job of blocking out cynicism uh, because for the first time in your career, a lot of times, you know, you're always told how great you are. And then all of a sudden there's NBA scouts and writers and people say, well, you're not really a great ball handler. You're not a true point guard or you're too small to guard the, two, you know, the off guard position or, you know what, you know, you, you don't have a quick enough lead or but he would block out that white noise in the of scouts and he stayed focused on what he did and what he did well and because of him being cast and not listening to the negativity laser-like folk of him and his work ethic uh, I mean he, he's transformed the game I mean we can sit back now and say wow look what he's done to the game and I think fans enjoy him because he's so relatable he's not so athletic that he plays above the rim most guys who pick up a basketball relate to him because they're like man he's my size he has my athleticism you know we do it like he can so we relate to him so that, you know he was so coachable uh, that he was uh, driven to be successful and that he, he he didn't into the negativity of the pundits and he just focused on his game and he honed his skills and he added assets to his game and his toolbox that we see what the Golden State Warriors are now because he was very selfless and he wanted to surround himself with the right pieces so that way he knew he could have signed bigger contracts, but he always took less money so other teammates could get more money so that they would be happy. So that that selflessness and that culture was starting to manifest itself and galvanize itself right there before our eyes. Uh, I love what, how you say, you know, he is so relatable because you know, you watch a player like him and you watch, I mean, his shot and where he shoots it from, but it's not impossible for someone to go outside and practice that. I mean, you could inevitably, I mean, if you really worked at it, you could get good at that versus you watch, you know, LeBron James, you know, no, you, you may not ever be able to do the things that LeBron James is able physically to do. That's right. And I That's always right. think, you know, the point guards are the best basketball players on the team, just because you're six three and under. You have to beat out so many more players to get to that spot. Versus if you're six nine, you still have to beat out a lot of guys, but not nearly as many. And so by the time if you make it to that level, your skills are so sharp, and, and you're so good at everything because you had so many people that you had to beat to get there. Uh, it really says a lot about you know a guy like that's work ethic. Did you ever think even then when you saw him and you saw how coachable he was, you saw the work ethic, you saw he was willing to learn? Could you ever picture that he was going to be the type of player that he is now? I don't think anybody could. Uh, but again, it's, it's that heart. It's that dedication. It's the work ethic. It's the laser focus. It's all those little tangibles um, that made him who he was. Now, I can tell you that he was already starting to do his pregame routine where he was doing the ball handling because I coached Steph Curry a second time at an NBA charity event right here in Salt Lake City where I was the head coach of that team that he was on. And, um, you know, I I think a thing that is important to share about his character, um, his core values, he was a guy before he was of his career, but he stayed before the game and after the game to make sure that anybody who wanted a photo with him or an autograph with him, 
he made sure that he signed every autograph for every player that was in that facility for that NBA charity event. And that's something that I observed and took from that saying, you know what, that's why he's unique. He takes the time, he puts in his work with his focus, with no distractions, but when it's time to be with the fans and the people, he was with every one of them who wanted an autograph. And uh, he did not leave that court until everybody had the autograph that they wanted. And uh, I think that's special because my adopted son, who is a professional player, got to sit on the bench with me that night I was, as I was the head coach. And he was out shooting threes in the corner. And we've got a picture of him right there with Steph Curry. And, of course, that's hanging in his bedroom. So I hope that my son obviously took that time to be a sponge and soak up and learn the things from him that he has now just signed his third contract to play it be a professional player himself over in the country of Georgia and Europe so uh, I'm, I'm grateful for those for those unique opportunities with my son you had a uh, you had a great story about uh, Beirut and Lebanon and, and winning that championship do you have any NBA stories that you remember when you think fondly about your time in the NBA maybe a instance with a player or a time with a coach or maybe some guy comes back and says something to you after years later is there anything like that that you wanted to share with us you know there, there's so many of them coach and, and again so many of the greats and I think of you know how the greats carried themselves I can remember when Kobe Bryant was first drafted into the league you know at the tender age of 18 in his first NBA summer league game he dropped 37 points at the pyramid in Long Beach but I think about you know that that sweatsuit and that swag that he had you knew with his mindset that he's like he was going to be something special because of his big language as a rookie coming in, you know getting under Jerry West tutelage so I remember that observation I can remember some great conversations with some NBA players and talking to them about life situations and some marital issues and so I, I've, I've just been blessed with some amazing amazing relationships and that's what this game does I'm just like talking with you right now coach Nick you know getting to know you and getting to see your passion and your purpose with basketball I think that this is something that that sports and basketball uh, awards us and, it, and you can't put a dollar amount on that so to build these relationships with these people uh, I, I think are phenomenal because they're just like you and you and I they're just extraordinary and they're extraordinary because of the extra effort and the extra time that they put in, um, you know, to, to learn the details and to perfect those details. Awesome. Um, Coach, how has the game changed since you started back way back in 89 as a coach and now you're watching it now and you have friends in the bubble and, 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 and you're watching the games like we all are. How has the game changed uh, from when you started to now? Well, of course, uh, when I started coaching, the game was more inside out, uh, where, you know, you had a, a big man who would have his back to the basket, and you needed a dominant big man in the game. And now you're seeing, that, again, that European influence to where the big man doesn't have to play with his back to the basket. He can face up and hit the mid-range jumper. Or, you know, now you're seeing Brooke Lopez uh, with the Milwaukee Bucks standing out there shooting threes, and you're seeing, you know, small ball being played with that space and pace and where it's very guard oriented and you're watching Damian Lillard who played college basketball right up the road from us here at Weber State University um, where their range where they're comfortable to shoot from 30 and 35 feet and I think that skill set um, of, of this of the pace and and the spacing of the game to allow these guys to have that freedom and you see the James Hardens with their step back threes or their step side threes uh, that's where the game has really changed to where it's so guard oriented and if you have great guards who are coachable and are great leaders you can take a an average team and put them on a pedestal to where they're, they're competing with the great teams because look what Chris Paul is doing right now with that Oklahoma City team where it's just great guard play who is an extension of his coach but yet he's a coach and leader on the, on the floor with that talent I saw him and Schroeder having a conversation last week 
in the game against Houston where Schroeder's like, man, you're a beast. You, you know, you, you're, you're getting it done. But yet he was instilling confidence in those players and, and letting them believe in themselves where they could p- compete. And uh, I, I think that's where the game has really changed, where it's, uh, it's, it's about ball mastery. It's about ball control, ball between the possession, uh, guard play, superior guard play. And uh, to me, it's a lot of fun because it's an exciting brand for entertainment purposes. How do you see the game changing in the future? What do you see the next evolution of the game is? Uh, probably having a four-point play. <laughs> probably, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, the lane uh, increasing in size like it is in Europe, so there's even more spacing. Uh, I definitely see, you know, things like that that, that could happen. I, I see probably rule changes where the game is going to be sped up and even faster. Uh, it's entertaining to watch. It's entertaining to coach. Uh, it's entertaining to play. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of that comes to, uh, I think Adam Silver is at the forefront for uh, for major sports commissioners uh, for him to take the data and the science and to create this bubble um, you know for safety in this COVID environment and yet allowing these players to have let them have their voices heard uh, you know for the for the social injustices and the police reform and, and all the things that are going on within today's society um, those are not easy things to navigate and I think Adam Silver should be commended and congratulated for for, for putting together, uh, you know, such an entertaining product. And again, I think these other major sports commissioners need to follow that blueprint because to me, he did it the right way because first and foremost, he had the skill set to listen to people who had more knowledge than he had and then surround himself with those support systems. So where that way, you know, he let those people do what they did best. And that was to, to rely on, you know, science and data and listen to the players for what was important to them uh, because it's, it's truly a difficult thing to navigate and he's done a job. Yeah, I, I've I've been really happy watching the games, and it's been a uh, it's been a breath of fresh air, really, with all the stuff going on to watch them play and just being here all day, you know, in in in, uh, in quarantine, it's been something really to look forward to. It's interesting how you think that the game will change more and more European with the wider lane and 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 things like that. And I've heard people talk about a four point line that would be that would be a big, uh, that would be a big uh, addition, but the way guys shoot it now, you could see it and that would only increase the pace and space. That's for sure. I see it a little bit different. You know, I, I know all the guards and I, I think the game will be where you have three or four point guards on the floor, guys who are point guards on the floor. But I also see, you know, I see it trending towards, you know, these, these seven foot plus guys with, with skill, the Porzingis bowl, you know, um, Giannis, they're six ten, six eleven, but you know, Anthony Davis, Guys like that, there's going to be so many more guys who are seven foot one, two, three, and four who can do things that have never ever been done before. And I think I think as continue people continue to get bigger and stronger, and the guards and everyone gets more skill based. I can see I can see ten years where there's you know there there's three guys over seven foot who are guard starting. On, well, on a lot of the teams. I, I think you're right, coach. And, and, and what I hear you saying is, is the versatility where they can guard and switch and guard multiple positions. And yet they can step out and do things uh, within their tools of their toolbox where they're not just going to be shooters or they're not just going to be slashers. They're going to have to be able to do, do multiple things. The teams though, can, you know, can you be the energy guy like a Montrez Harrell where, you know, you just have that high motor, but yet you can defend and you can rebound. And yet, you know, you can be a rim runner and, and be somebody who can, you know, be that extra piece on the floor with that versatility where I think, you know, everybody used to have specialties uh, in the game. I think, the more length and size and versatility that you have offensively and defensively, you're, you're just going to be very, very marketable in the very near future. And that length and versatility is something that you're already seeing being implemented into the game. And yes, um, you know, before, if you saw a seven footer, you know, take a shot outside the paint, they were being screamed at, they were being benched and told they, they should not do that. Where again, now it is an asset. And if you think of the first person who allowed that to happen, 
give credit to Larry Brown clear back with the Indiana Pacers when he allowed Rick Smith to face up because he was a European guy who could shoot that mid-range jumper where everybody else tried to make him play with his back to the basket. But Larry Brown was the first one who let Rick Smith face up and that Indiana team ended up going to the, you know, deep into the playoffs because of that one simple adjustment of recognizing what players did and did well and, you know, accentuating the positive of a player instead of forcing a square peg into a round hole, making a player do something that he's not comfortable doing. So we as coaches got to learn from that, do better and take players and meet them where they are. And those coaches who can do that, somebody that they're not good at, where they're going to get frustrated uh, and they're going to be, you know, they're going to body with and be, you know, lose confidence, let do what they will. And when we as coaches, you know, have to identify those things. I think that's great. I, I don't think I've ever thought about who the first uh, NBA player or coaches were who really allowed the big guys to play outside. And, and I love the fact that Larry Brown let Rick Smith do Rick Smith's and, uh, and play on the outside game. I think that's a great thing. That's something I won't forget. Uh, two more things I want to ask you. First, um, how do you improve as a coach? What are some ways that coaches listening to this can improve their game, sharpen their skills? And then after that, tell us about you. You have a very popular uh, show on Facebook Live where you talk just like we're talking today, but with people a lot better than I am at basketball. And, and you learn a lot of things from them. Talk about your show after you tell us how you improve as a coach. You know, I think the first thing uh, we as coaches must do is we must have a self-evaluation of what our own personal strengths and weaknesses are. And I think once we identify what our weaknesses are, make sure we surround ourselves with a staff who have the strengths to what our weaknesses are and be okay with that and be vulnerable and be willing to admit you don't have all the answers. I think coaches must continue to evolve and grow daily. Uh, over my shoulder again, I have a bookcase where you know I'm constantly reading, I'm constantly watching the game, I'm constantly listening uh, to make sure that I continue to evolve and grow because just like a player, if you feel like in your heart you've done your best, you have because you've accepted that complacency to say, well, I've, I've done the best that I can do. I think you have to grow. You have to evolve. You have to continue to learn. And again, again the most important piece is, is know that you don't have all the answers. You are not 100% correct all the time. There's going to be times where you make mistakes. And when you make that mistake as a coach, go go admit that you made that mistake. If there's anything wrong with that. I think this new day and age of coaches, um, you have to be willing to, that you don't have all the answers and you don't know everything again. Um, but yet, you know, to, to establish that culture, make sure that you have high energy guys, make sure that they're always enthusiastic, make sure they're always positive, that they're always uplifting, make sure that they're great teachers and great communicators. I think that's how you're going to help your staff and help yourself grow as a person to first admit what your weaknesses are and first admit that you don't have all the answers. You don't know everything about that, that there is to go on because every day the game changes every day. There are tangibles that you don't control as coaches, as outside factors. Um, and to be able to make sure that you have great relationships with the players that you, that you work with and, and work with the players where they're at, um, you know, take them, where they are today, mold them, lead them, guide them, mentor them, direct them, and empower them with the life skills so that they too can have a quality of life post-basketball playing days. And I think that's vital. Um, with our show, Coach, uh, I, I've been blessed because of the relationships that I've been able to form around the globe that, you know, we have one of the number one digital coaching shows uh, around the globe. And uh, we do it Facebook Live. Uh, and, we, you know, to have former NBA players, uh, current NBA players, NBA coaches, NBA front office executives, uh, NBA agents come on, also NBA journalists come on and share their insights, share their stories, share their journeys, share their experiences. Um, 
the whole thing with, with our show, the vision with my show is basically just to create a space and a platform to allow these guys to come on and not just regurgitate what you hear on ESPN, but get to know them as individuals and get to know them as people. Get to know a Keith Smart, as I talked about, where he get to talk about, you know, being able to come home and be with his kids and pray with his kids at night. You don't get to hear that stuff, uh, you know, on TV. So I think, for, for people to, to be empowered, be inspired, uh, learn from other people's journeys is something that, that we wanted to do with our show. So again, power, inspire, educate. Uh, that, that's what the whole vision for our show on YouTube, where it's just video. Uh, we've just started putting more and more content on YouTube, uh, Facebook Live. So uh, if you go to Facebook and just look, look search for the coach scott field show um, we have over the 5500 followers now uh, we also were on, on instagram at scott fields and twitter i'm just at scott underscore fields so that's our social media platforms also you can reach me at coach scott fields at gmail.com uh, i'm an open book uh, I've been blessed in my life that people have thrown me a life jacket and people have given me guidance and direction at a young age. So if there's anything that I can do for other coaches, players, or parents, please reach out to me. I'm going to respond and uh, hopefully I can lead, guide, and direct and answer all questions that are out there for me. Well, Coach, uh, that was a terrific interview. You're about as energetic as anyone I've ever had on here. Uh, a lot of insights we were able to pack into just about over an hour. Uh, Coach, I appreciate you joining us today. I appreciate your insight and all the stuff that you've done for the game. Thank you so much for being here. Coach, I, again, I'm humbled that you asked me to come on. Uh, I, I feel it's an honor and a privilege to share with you because I can see you know, you've done your research. You, you have a passion for what you do. There's purpose to what you do. I ask that everybody continues to support what you're doing because it's all about, uh, you know, steel sharpens steel and one man's candle does not go out by lighting another candle. So uh, let's continue to light and lead and guide and direct and mentor and uh, keep doing what you're doing, my friend. I, anytime you want me to come back, I'm, I'm an email away. So hit me up and uh, we can come back and revisit visit and, and get deeper into some of the topics that we kind of scratched on the surface today, but proud of what you're doing. And uh, I support you as well. Thank you very much, coach. Well, that does it for the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at Nick Senato at ymail.com. See you next time. Yo, it's your girl, Fresh of Love, and you are listening to MTMV Sports. Keep it locked. Y'all, we were just talking about um, what makes me – oh, well, who were you most happy for in the Super Bowl, right? So who were you most happy for in the Super Bowl? Everybody talked. Maybe it was Tom Brady. Maybe you were happy for Ndamukong Sue, who I was most happy for um, after a long career, right? Um, but I'll tell you this. I'm most happy when I can go – into my situation as a man and know that I'm confident, feel confident doing it, right? I'm most happy when my wife gives me the ready-to-go eyes, and I know that happens more often when I am fully trimmed and I'm ready to rock, man. Listen, I want to tell you about Manscaped because that that's what's keeping me right now as a refined gentleman. Manscaped is doing that for me. I've had several different instances where I use the, the clippers. Well, I told you it's not a real tradition of mine, man, but I've done it before. I tried to go down with the clippers way 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 too scared to make that thing happen but manscaped have come out with um the lawnmower 3.0 and now i can go into that situation with confidence manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer the manscaped engineering team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest situation hair trimmer <laughs> ever created the lawnmower 3.0 the third yeah. generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to advanced skin safe technology pioneered by manscaped y'all and it has been an absolute lifesaver i love it i love it i love it but i'm not gonna hog the mic miles austin you've had some experience with the with the lawnmower 3.0 um and with the manscaped products how are you feeling the bottom bro Bro, I absolutely love them, bro. Like, I, it's it's a it's a they have a certain name for like everything, like a like a deodorizer, and then like a like a well, like a powder or like a the lawnmower. To me, honestly, you know, I've cut. I'm, I was a barber in a past life, 
So, like, I still got all my clippers and stuff like that. That lawnmower 3.0 is a game changer. Ceramic blade is a game changer. You can go in there with no fear, not be afraid. I'm just glad that Manscaped sent the stuff so voice when hear his situation. That's a blessing for everybody. <laughs> yo, yo, honestly, yo, before Manscaped sent the stuff, the voice admittingly had, had tried to avoid that situation. And I get it, bro. Now, after a fresh shave, how you feeling, voice? I feel fine. Um, one thing I'll say regarding the lawnmower that I really like, uh, one, the peace of mind of knowing that the ceramic blade was there so that I didn't have to worry about things. We even with that, there's a guard. So, you know, you can use a guard and, and be safe. I really like the light on it. The LED light. Because I yes, did sir. mine in the shower. The hair's and popping and off. There's no screen. light in the shower. So I had no problem seeing where I was going and it's what I was doing. And uh yeah, it, it was a wonderful thing. It was a wonderful thing. Really I, it, it made me pop for the weed whacker. And I'm telling you, you know, after you get to a, a certain age, you know, uh, um, Lord has a, a good sense of humor because hair <laughs> stops growing where it's supposed to grow and starts growing where it's not supposed to grow. Mm-hmm. The weed whacker. Definitely helped me with that situation. I got hair out that I didn't know was there. Talk to me, voice. <laughs> yeah, he. Cut them nose <laughs> Yo, they've upgraded. Hey. They've upgraded hey, to seven thousand RPM motor with quiet stroke technology. And I don't want to forget to tell you about the charging stand. You can show um your motor off. You can show your motor off loud and proud because this intel- intelligently designed stand is conveniently charging your um lawnmower all the time right it's powered by usb so all you have to do is go ahead and set it up put it in and you're good to go if you're listening to me speak right now i want you to experience it firsthand for yourself trim that situation downstairs and you can get 20 percent off plus free shipping with the code mtmv my team my voice that's mtmv at manscape.com listen your wife will thank you your partner will thank you listen Listen, we're refining the gentleman. All you have to do is go to manscaped.com, put in MTMV, and get 20% off, plus free shipping on any order, any order. So if it's $10, 20% off just for you because you put in the code MTMV. So go ahead and do that. Go ahead and support the podcast. We love you. We thank you. Yo, Rick, Rick, real quick. All stay together. Rick, real quick, though. Still smell good though, bro. I, I put the deodorant on my body. Nice, right? Don't here. say that like that. <laughs> but I'm my glad you're in a good situation. Good, my situation, sir. I'm good. Right. I'm glad you're in a good situation, y'all. I'm We're glad you're in a good situation. Gentlemen. I'm happy for you. <laughs> but listen, y'all. Listen, your partner would thank you. We're refining the gentleman here. Go to manscaped.com. Use the code MTMV for 20% off and free shipping. And if you're like, you know what? I'm a little scared about this. I don't really know if I want to use Manscaped. Right? Hit us up. <laughs> Hit us up. And we'll give you a little bit more encouragement to go to manscaped.com and get you a gift on us. We love you. And we can't wait to talk to you more about this. And we're only doing this because we love y'all, man. Um, V. Tell them about V-Day coming up. Oh, guys, like Rick just said, you want to make sure you pop in, you right, you smooth and you tight. Because guess what? That Valentine's Day is up and it's coming up next weekend. I don't know about you. I want my dude ready. So you definitely want to get you um, some Manscaped. Hit up the MTMV and get the 20% off. Because, sis, don't you want it popping? Let's go. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm playing a Chris Brown.